This is part two of Emmanuel Missing. When I returned to school, I told very few people about my brother's suicide. It wasn't because I felt shame or guilt. In truth, I don't know what I felt. I just hated the awkwardness that follows when someone finds out about such tragedy. Most stammer about how sorry they are all the while wishing they never asked and looking for any opportunity to get away. Even more, I just didn't want to hear people tell me as they're prone to do at a small Baptist college, that they were praying for me and my family in the hope that God would make everything right again. Inside, I would scream, it'll never be right again, no matter how much you pray. You can't say that to them, of course, because they mean well. And they wouldn't understand that the God about whom they spoke and to whom they prayed, a God who intervenes in history, who takes away pain and suffering, no longer made sense to me, was no longer a God I could relate to. One friend, thinking she was doing me a favor, gave me a copy of the poem Footprints. Read it, she suggested. I know it'll provide some comfort to you like it did for me when my grandmother died. So I read it. Instead of feeling better, I got pissed off. The poem is about a person walking on the beach with God who asks where God was when a tragedy had happened in his life. God's reply was that once the tragedy struck him, there was only one set of footprints in the sand because God was carrying him during the tough times. Are you fucking kidding me, I asked? Can you honestly stand there and tell me that the pain that my family experienced, that my mother felt deep in her heart when she heard about the police prying my brother's hands off the steering wheel could have been worse? Trust me, we looked for God, but God was nowhere to be found. The gut-wrenching sobs my mother cried that day tells me that she, not God, bore the full brunt of the pain that comes when she lost her son. I tore the poem up, threw it on the floor, and walked away. Now here I sit in this religion class where we're talking about the crucifixion and how in the moments before his death, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some students in the class mouthed the dogmatic belief that this was all the part of God's plan for the salvation of the world. That Jesus didn't feel forsaken, he only said it for the sake of those around him. My professor looked to see how I was reacting to this discussion. Because of several conversations I had with him outside of class, he knew the struggles I was having, the questions I was raising. He listened patiently to the class before he spoke. With tears in his eyes, he asked how anyone could believe that a loving God could demand such torture, such suffering. In words that continued to echo in my mind 30 years later, he said, Don't you see? The horror Jesus anticipated in the Garden of Gethsemane was now a reality. He prayed that God would take the cup from him, but God didn't. He prayed again, but there was no reply. And now the time had come to drink. But where was God? He had lost that sense of presence. He felt alone. He experienced abuse and ridicule throughout his life, but God's presence was real. But now, in his hour of need, he was hurting and alone and needed the reassurance of God that everything would turn out all right. But God was absent. He cried out, I gave you my all, God. I sacrificed everything. I've been faithful and you've been with me. My God, my God, why do you now forsake me? The darkness that engulfed the land overwhelmed him. There were no signs of hope. God didn't respond. He felt alone, utterly forsaken by the God to whom, he, to whom he had committed his life. And in this darkness, he died. This was his hell, not merely to suffer, but to suffer and seek for God's sustaining presence. 
The class sat in stunned silence. Where is God when you need God? He continued as he looked directly at me, echoing the question my mother and I asked on that fateful Christmas day. In times of suffering, I'm not sure one can ever adequately answer this question, but I knew though that do know that simply saying to those who suffer and who feel abandoned by God, God is with you, you just don't know it, or, or God will get you through this if you just believe and have faith, doesn't do justice to the sense of abandonment and forsakenness people who suffer experience. We should not trivialize those legitimate moments of unbelief or unfaith that suffering, especially innocent suffering, innocent suffering often bring. One student worriedly asked, but we have always believed that God loves us, especially in those moments. Are you saying we are wrong? Realizing her concerns were genuine, he replied, not at all. I'm just suggesting that God's love is not demonstrated by protecting us from the pain and tragedy of life, but in helping us to create new possibilities out of such tragedy. Illness, accidents, death, and misfortunes that make no distinctions, they happen to all of us at one time or another, senselessly perhaps, but they still happen. The good news of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is not that God protects us from harm's way, but that God suffers with us and will work with us to create new possibilities, even out of the most meaningless situations. With that, he wiped his eyes and dismissed class. Out in the hall, students were talking about what our professor had said. Some were angered by it. Who does he think he is telling us that our beliefs are wrong? Others were confused, not simply by the words, but by the emotion he expressed. They'd never seen a professor cry before. Was he teaching or preaching? I, on the other hand, was deeply moved. First by his words, he was the first to speak directly to my experience, to what I was feeling and thinking. The tragedy of my brother's death was senseless. We never found out why he did it. We could only surmise. But his suicide brought my family together, really together, for the first time in years. Sean's death confronted us with the reality of how much we were strangers to one another and how little we knew about each other's lives. His death rekindled a sense of what it meant to be a family and the love we felt for one another, a love that continues to this day. This was the meaning we were creating together. Was God a part of that? I didn't know. But it made more sense about God's relationship to humanity to me in the face of tragedy than anything else. I was moved most, however, by my professor's passion. He cared deeply for the ideas he taught and even more for the students' lives he touched. He was not afraid to challenge our simplistic ideas, to push us to move outside the narrow confines of our own perspectives, to see the bigger picture, and to force us to embrace the ambiguity so much a part of life a part of faith, but he did it in ways that invited connection and community with him, with, the, with each other, and with God. And he was not the only professor to do so. We spoke frequently about these things for the rest of the semester, and there, he often provided readings, C.S. Lewis's A Brief Observed, Abraham Heschel's Essays on Divine Pathos, to help me to make sense of it all. It was then that I knew what I wanted to do with my life, to teach, to express the same passion for the ideas, for the people who generate them, and for the student, students who encounter them, who bring their own stories and experiences to the table, often born of confusion and tragedy. It would be a mistake to say that I lost my faith on the heels of my brother's suicide. Faith refers to relationship, to the hope and trust we placed in others, and others place in us. At the time, God seemed less trustworthy than I would have thought. After all, Emmanuel was missing. 
Elie Wiesel, in his autobiographical account of his experiences in the Holocaust night, says that although his understanding of God had changed dramatically, he never lost faith. The same was true for me. I'm not sure I can say the same for my mother. In the death of her son, the most worrisome and troubled child, a big part of her had died. In my phone calls home, I sensed that she was slowly losing hope and her will to live, even though she still had two children at home. She smoked more, took her insulin sporadically, and stopped caring about her weight. Ten months later, at the age of 54, and a weight of 311 pounds, she suffered a heart attack. In the ambulance, taking her to the hospital, her heart stopped. It took well over four minutes to revive her, and her brain suffered irreversible and extensive damage. After 10 days in a coma, her huge bulk heaving to the rhythm of the respirator that kept her alive, my family chose to remove her from all life support. She died shortly thereafter. At the funeral, I wept. The sentiment expressed in that old spiritual song now made sense to me. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. My mother, like it is for many people, was my connection to my family, to my sense of place, to the world from which I came. With her death, those connections were threatened. While her death also seemed senseless to me, it didn't challenge me in the same way. Thanks to the tender guidance of my professors, the renewed bonds with my family, and a new understanding of God's relationship with humanity, I'd come to a place where I embraced ambiguity and mystery, not seeking answers where there were none, but looking instead for what possibilities could emerge, even in the face of senseless tragedy. On the plane ride back to my school for my mother's funeral, I experienced an overwhelming sense of peace and calm that in the past might have seemed out of place. Not this time. I was studying Shakespearean sonnets that semester with a dear and caring English professor. I chose to use that formula to express how I felt. Farewell, my grieving heart, for I must go to seek some other solace to find rest. I feel your pain and hope that you will know the reason for my leaving you distressed. A queen beseeches me to follow her, to find the calm I lost so recently. I dare not stay, for conscience will deter this queen who's come to find a home with me. I cannot comprehend her presence here. The moment seems so wrong and sadly gray especially since life to disappear from one I dearly loved and knew always. But peace will brook few limits to her reign, and she ascends the victor once again. The advent of Christmas will always remind me of my brother and all those who suffer some affliction, self-imposed or imposed by society, many of whom continue to sit in my classes year after year, like the father whose nine-year-old daughter died of leukemia, the young man who buried his mother after her long, unsuccessful battle with cancer, and the countless young women who continue to struggle with the emotional pain of being sexually assaulted by male classmates they thought loved them. I hope I will continue to feel the same empathy for them as my professor did for me, and offer to be present with them and provide some comfort. And when the time is right, help them to find meaning even amid the senseless, the tragic, and the ambiguous meaning that often arises only in the context of renewed relationships with family, friends, and faith in one's God.